Hi, this is Polly Woods, and I'm excited that you're listening to the Beautiful Words podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about John 3 that houses the most well-known verse of the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not die, but have eternal life. This verse is both beautiful and convicting, but today we'll get to dig into the context and I think we'll find that it's more life-giving than we ever imagined. So chapter 3 starts out with the story of Nicodemus. This is probably the only story in the book of John that most people will remember about Nicodemus, but he's actually a recurring character in the book. If you have time, you can pause this podcast and go through and read his story. He's mentioned here. And then he's mentioned again in chapter 7, verses 40 to 52. And his story is concluded in chapter 19, verses 38 to 42. His redemption story brings us some hope. In this book, the Jewish elite are so antagonized that it almost makes you think that there's no hope for them. For us in the 21st century, some of us could be compared to that religious elite. And we should be equally shocked and alienated by the book of John. But the words of hope that we need are here in Nicodemus's transformation. He provides a path for the Jewish elite or in the 21st century, a religious elite to be redeemed as well. So let's read together chapter three, verse one. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So let's look. What time... Did this man, did Nicodemus, come to talk to Jesus? By night. We already learned that this is a symbol for the author. Jesus is light, and Nicodemus is currently in darkness. Of course, the historical real-life significance is that he didn't want his buddies at the temple to know that he's visiting Jesus, who had, had, who had just had an outburst in their marketplace. So he came when they wouldn't know that he was there. Yet Nicodemus does show that he's coming in with a certain amount of belief in place. He says that he knows Jesus is a teacher come from God, something that his colleagues would not agree with. And he also refers to signs. We know that Jesus is not performing signs for the elite. Only a few verses ago, they begged him for a sign and he wouldn't give them one. Yet the poor were seeing signs in 2.23. Either Nicodemus believes the signs that he's heard about Jesus, or he's hidden among the crowds when Jesus was teaching. Jesus says that one cannot enter the kingdom of God unless he was born again. The language here is ambiguous, and Jesus may also be trying to say born from above. This is one of the moments where the author purposefully gives us a dual meaning. 
Nicodemus takes it very literally, and he misunderstands Jesus in almost a funny way. Do you mean I have to go back into my mother's womb? Jesus corrects him gently, saying he must be born of water and of the Spirit. Now, there's another dual meaning. It says um, water and the Spirit, but in the original Greek, it can also mean unless you are born of the water of the Spirit. So this will distinguish again from um, from John's baptism to Jesus's baptism, which is more powerful and more effective because it's a spiritual baptism. In verse 9, Nicodemus says, how can these things be? And that launches Jesus into a long speech, which the scholars call a discourse. In the other three gospels, Jesus typically speaks in short phrases, but in the book of John, Jesus is often giving long, theologically packed and complicated discourses. I think this is just reflective of the understanding of the authors. The author of John is prepared to understand and compile these discourses. He's very educated. While the other authors, although some of them, like Luke, did have an education, um, but they mainly remember Jesus' parables and short sayings. I don't know about you, but when I read the long discourses in the Bible, especially in the epistles, and also here in the book of John, it often takes a little more work for me to actually understand the meaning of each phrase and why it needs to be there. So if you're looking for a little bit more of a challenge, I would say you can pause this and read it to yourself, taking time to understand the thought process in this section. Um, Authors like John were inundated with Hellenistic philosophy. So of course, the way that they're right is affected by that. And I think that's what makes it so hard to grasp the importance of each phrase. It's very, if you've ever read philosophy, especially ancient philosophy, um, there's just a lot of clauses and subclauses, and it just makes it hard to understand, particularly for our minds. So um, if you want to pause, you can pause and take it in slowly. If not, we're going to read it together and see what we can get out of it. So we're reading from verse 10. Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel? And yet you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you have not received our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe when I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and people have loved the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. So Jesus starts this discourse with a rebuke of Nicodemus In Jesus's mind, anyone who teaches the Old Testament should be able to clearly see that Jesus is a fulfillment of it. He contrasts how easy these concepts should be to understand. After all, from Jesus's perspective, these are earthly concepts. 
Now, when I think about this, it honestly sets me off into this wonder about Jesus. Because if you know the history of the time period where Jesus is speaking and preaching and teaching, um, you know that there are a lot of messianic pretenders who have come and gone. People who have said that they were the Messiah, people who have pointed to prophecies and said, hey, I fulfill the prophecy because of X, Y, and Z. Even people who were miracle workers who had, um, and we don't know exactly how, but who somehow showed um, miracles somewhat similar to those that Jesus did. Of course, Jesus's were on a much grander scale. So when you think about that and you think about where Nicodemus is, he must be thinking to himself, well, how am I supposed to know Jesus if you're the real thing? Obviously, there's a certain, there's something different about Jesus. I don't think that Nicodemus was going to every messianic pretender and asking the same questions. And the reason I say that is because he says very clearly that it's, that it's clear to him that Jesus is speaking from God, that he was sent from God. That's one of the first things that he says. So clearly there's something different about Jesus. But I just think it's interesting that Jesus comes in and says, listen, if you want, if you're supposed to teach the Old Testament to other people, and if you know the Old Testament, then you should know that I'm the real thing. So I just, I just think that's kind of interesting to point out because I wonder what it is that was so different about Jesus and what he was doing compared to some of the messianic pretenders. And and we could definitely try to think through that even without knowing what those other pretenders were like, because there are some things about Jesus that clearly are unique, um, like his care for people, even in the smallest circumstances, which we saw in the wedding in Cana. Um, and his ability to speak and teach things that were in accordance with the Old Testament, but still brought something new. And there are lots of other things that we can talk through that makes Jesus different from these other uh, messianic pretenders. But of course, the biggest one of all is Jesus didn't want to take over Rome, which is something that we talked about a little bit in a previous episode. But Jesus wasn't there trying to take over Rome. He wasn't there trying to create an army. He wasn't there trying to do that sort of thing. He, he wasn't as interested in politics as he was in people. So anyway, it's just interesting that Jesus thinks it's so obvious <laughs> that Nicodemus should know right off the bat. Well, anyway, um, Jesus says that he's here to reveal heavenly things. And he asks how Nicodemus will understand those heavenly things if he can't understand earthly things that are simple to understand. And you should remember this because it will come back later in the chapter. Well, and then Jesus makes an Old Testament reference to the serpent in the desert. So that story can be found in Numbers 21. Um, you can read it if you like, but I'm just going to summarize. Um, so basically, Moses and the Israelites are in the desert, and the Israelites are, as usual, sick of it. They're complaining against God and against Moses. They say that the manna is horrible, and they're so sick of this. And the Lord sends snakes out to bite and punish the people. Surprisingly, the snakes are enough to get the people to repent and ask for forgiveness. And as a result, God asks Moses to make a statue out of a serpent made of bronze and put it on a pole. If anyone looked on the bronze serpent, they would live. Now, if you've read enough of the Old Testament, this story should strike you as very strange. First, God rarely sent plagues against his own people as punishment. If you remember in Egypt, the plagues were sent against the Egyptians, but they never affected his peop God's people 
Um, and you know, they went through dif difficulties in the desert, but they were usually normal wilderness issues like lacking food, lacking water, not fiery serpents. So this, it's a little odd because of that. And then secondly, God's solution involved making an image and lifting it up on a pole, which is the way in which ancient religions worship their gods. Almost always in the Old Testament, God is ordering knocking down of poles, melting down of bronze idols. It's interesting that he made this choice here. Now, I've done very little research into this story, I have to admit. <laughs> Still, I, I haven't been able to find any good explanations as to why God decides to save his people by looking at a figure that looks strangely similar to an idol which he has already forbidden over and over again. There's a consensus that looking at the snake is an act of faith. You don't just get healed because a snake exists. You have to go out and look at it for yourself. So that's something that a lot of scholars say um, is the reason for this story. Another thought that I've seen from scholars is um, basically that God will use what a, a culture knows about medicine to heal, even if it's incorrect. And I do believe that's true. So in this incident, um, that applies to ancient cultures and the ancient cultures surrounding Israel believed in sort, sorts of talismans um, that would then heal you. And so God used something that was culturally relevant to bring the healing. And that is certainly possible. But for me, it still seems like a strange solution. Yahweh is completely against idols. And you'll remember the golden calf story uh, where the Israelites made a golden calf while uh, Moses was up on Mount Sinai and how angry God was when he saw that golden calf. So this seems totally incongruous. So I have my own, maybe strange, <laughs> opinion. I think God was making a statement. I think he could have easily healed everyone in some other way. He could have just miraculously healed them. He could have made them undergo a water ritual like baptism. He could have asked them to go through a period of mourning by ripping their clothes and covering themselves in ashes. All these things have been done all over the Old Testament. But he chose this idle-looking thing. To be honest, I think he was mocking them. See, first, they were punished for their lack of faith in him and in Moses. And the only thing that stopped them from their complaining was the snakes. So truly, in their minds, they weren't coming to repentance because of their love of God, making them feel bad for their lack of faith. They're coming to repentance because they have faith that these snakes have the ability to take their lives. It's not a fear of God. It's a fear of snakes. So God brings a cure that makes fun of their faith in these snakes. He has them look on the image of a bronze snake in order to be healed. It's clear that he's the one who's doing the healing, but it's also clear that the people really only have faith in the snakes and not in God. Anyway, that's my thought. <laughs> that's just kind of a tidbit for fun. Back to Jesus. <laughs> um, so he refers to this passage about the snake, and he says that just as the serpent was lifted up in the desert, so he will be lifted up in order to bring life to the people. The serpent saved people from physical death. Jesus saves from spiritual death, and whoever believes in him will be saved. And that's where we get to verse 316. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. 
Now pay attention, this word so in English feels a little funny, um, but it refers to quality. For God in such a way loved the world. For God loved the world so much is, is might be a better translation these days. Um, in the Old Testament story, God sent a bronze serpent. In contrast, God is now sending his own son. There's a progression here. In verse 15, it says that the son of man was sent and that's a title for the messiah but now in this verse jesus makes it clear that it's not just any person who's a messiah but it's god's own son so then we have an explanation that god isn't condemning the world the world is already condemned in other words many take christianity's claim that you can only come to god through jesus as though people are being sent to hell because of jesus But truthfully, hell was already in the picture. It's a done deal. The good news is that God is sending his son to save the world. The bronze serpent wasn't sending those who chose not to look to their deaths, but it was giving a way out for those who would. Lastly, we have more light and darkness theme. Just imagine Jesus giving this talk to Nicodemus at night. How powerful the image of verses 19 through 21. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light. Darkness back in that time was very different from darkness in our time. I don't think many of us even know what darkness is. When we talk about it being dark out, There's plenty of street lights and, you know, if it's your backyard, you might have a sensor light or if it's your front porch, you've got a light on the porch or if you're inside and you turn off the lights, you've got the light on your phone charger, the light on the TV, the light in all these different places. We don't even know what dark is, but in that time period, when you talked about darkness, you talked about pitch black, only the candles. Maybe you've been in a power outage and you've seen a little bit closer what pitch black really is like. So when he says that people love the darkness rather than the light, that's even more stark than what we think of it as. And that's a beautiful parallel to chapter 1 verse 5. It says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Or the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not understood it. So... After this discourse, John the baptizer is given the spotlight to testify about Jesus. This is intricately tied into the story with Nicodemus. Much of what John has to say is really just a rephrasing of what Jesus just said and even uses similar imagery. This is important because in the ancient world, much like in our world, if you testify about yourself, that's fine, but it's stronger if someone else testifies about you. We use character references, for example. So that's the sort of mirroring we see provided by John the baptizer here. Anyway, that's just my sneak peek. Let's read the passage itself, starting in verse 22. After Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside, he remained and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim because the water was plentiful there and the people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. 
So we learned in this chapter that Jesus, in the next chapter, we learned that Jesus himself is not the one who's baptizing with his disciples. Still, John the baptizer continues to baptize because the water is plentiful. Remember, water is a theme. And if water is plentiful, plentiful, I think that's an indication that there are a lot of people who are wanting to repent. A lot of people who are seeing Jesus, who are learning, who are repenting, and who are believing. Then we have an incident where a Jew, in other words, a member of the Jewish elite, is stirring up some trouble with John the Baptizer's disciples. He's trying to hurt John the Baptizer's pride and maybe divide the Jesus group from the John group, but he misunderstands the difference between his own empty religion and true belief. In the Sanhedrin, everyone wants to be the top dog, the most important. So he thinks he's going to get John the baptizer by telling him that someone else is baptizing more people than he is. But what he doesn't realize is that John is preaching that Jesus is the top dog and no one else can take his position. So he replies, starting in verse 27. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. Notice that Jesus said that you must come from above. And mirroring Jesus is John the baptizer saying that you must come from above. Anyway, he who is of earth belongs to earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, and yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So something interesting to point out here is that whoever believes in the son has eternal life. It's in the present tense. John doesn't talk about a someday in heaven scenario. He talks about eternal life being something that belongs to and begins at the moment of belief. This is where we're going to park ourselves today. So let's just take some time with this idea. Unfortunately, we've gotten very comfortable with a theology that says that heaven starts when you die. I would say that's harmful theology for many reasons. First, if heaven starts when you die, you really don't need to accept Jesus' gift until your deathbed. In fact, the best case scenario is you live however you want to live, and then moments before your death, you give your life to Jesus so you get to live in heaven. Win-win. This is a problematic theology because it would mean that sin really is the most gratifying thing in the world, and heaven is only equal or maybe even not as good. When you start believing that, you have to question the goodness of a God that just doesn't want the best for you. You also become the God in your own life, the one who determines what's best for yourself, when clearly John the Baptizer is teaching us that we must diminish for God to grow. Many ancient people had this belief that the best thing to happen to you is to just 
uh, accept Jesus right before you die so that you can just go to heaven even though you lived however you wanted to live. And as a matter of fact, some of the ancient emperors had priests on call <laughs> so that if it ever seemed like they were about to die, the priest could come and help, help them accept Jesus so that they could go to heaven. So this is a very typical belief that has happened. But that doesn't fit in with this theology that John the Baptizer is saying that the person who believes has heaven now. Well, there's an opposite problem as well. If you think that heaven is your home and earth is just an evil trial, you're offending the very creator of this world, the one who declared that all his creation is very good. We're in this world to participate in it, to be part of its redemption. In Revelation, God isn't only concerned with heaven, but will be renewing heaven and earth. We can't miss God's concern for this home of ours because we're always thinking about God's heavenly home for us. So what does it mean that heaven starts now? Well, my favorite author is C.S. Lewis, and he's a genius at illustrating this concept. He does it throughout his works like The Last Battle and Screwtape Letters, but his most focused work on heaven is The Great Divorce. If you have a little extra time, I'd say you should read it. It's a short book and it's so powerful and convicting. But if I had to pick one Lewis quote that says it all, this would be it. Aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. That's from The Joyful Christian. Heaven should be starting now. That means that we aren't meant to live miserable lives of dreary servitude to God. It means that we live vibrantly, joyfully, rather than thinking of it as, oh, I must avoid sin at all costs, white knuckle it. We're meant to think of it as we're free from being slaves to sin. Our old shackles have been broke off and we are already free. So let's live that way. So this also has implications for heaven in the future. Rather than a place of clouds and harps, we're talking about a place of meaningful work, new places to discover, joys much like but greater than those that we experience today. When John the baptizer says that whoever has eternal life, this is something to rejoice in, something worth a wedding party, something full of light and levity, which Jesus is known to have loved. I hope that you will stay in a state of joy now while still longing for heaven. Well, that's all for now. Get excited for the next chapter because it's my favorite in the book of John, the Samaritan woman. This is Polly Woods. And in the light of what we were just talking about, I'd like you to think of these words by C.S. Lewis at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them down. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of a real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before.